Turn with me in your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul makes a surprising statement. He actually writes to Gentiles, but tells them no longer live as Gentiles. Paul wrote this, Philippians 3, 20-21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. So, understanding that citizenship, a very phrase that Paul uses, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says this, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What is Paul saying? Paul's looking at Gentile people and he says, Don't walk any longer as Gentiles. I mean, if, if, if you want to feel the force of that, it would be like him writing Americans and saying, I don't want you to walk any more like Americans. So you feel the edge on that, right? You feel a little bit of, a, of the sting. What is he saying? Well, he's using the term Gentile not in an ethnic sense, an ethnic Gentile. He's not because you have so much other scripture that tells them you don't have to become like the Jews to become a true child of Abraham. You don't have to subject yourself to circumcision and to the dietary laws to become a true son. So he's not telling the Gentiles to become Jews. He's telling them to live out their identity. He's using it in a moral sense. So it would sound like this. You must no longer live like unbelieving Americans. But as you dwell within these borders, you must live as those who are in Christ. Because there is a morally dark, depraved American value system that is opposed to God. And as we are in Christ, Paul is writing, no longer live that way. Paul's primary concern is how sin has affected the mind. Look at verse 17. At the end of that verse, he talks about the futility of their minds. So don't walk that way. Don't let your life be characterized by that kind of thinking. Look at verse 18. Look at the, look at the phrase, darkened in their understanding. Keep reading in verse 18. The ignorance that is in them. Now, our minds might pull back a little bit from that because we all know or we should all know some incredibly brilliant and creative unbelieving people, don't we? And in that sense where they're extremely gifted and intelligent, they still image their creator. We benefit from some of the technologies from very brilliant unbelieving people. Okay, I'm sure that unbelievers, non-followers of Jesus Christ, had a very huge part in creating this incredible device called an iPad. And if you know anything about this company, you'll know that some of, his leader, some of its leaders were incredibly brilliant. But they were not followers of Christ. What Paul is saying here is even though they still image God, their rational processes are distorted and darkened so that when they make decisions based on moral judgments, they are untrustworthy. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Even incredibly brilliant, unbelieving people have a broken moral compass. They do not subject themselves to the Word of God. For example, there are intelligent, gifted people who have no problem with the mass killing of unborn babies. Their mind is darkened. It is the futility of their thinking. And that is a blot on our nation particularly. In verse 18 of Ephesians 4, Paul identifies the problem. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. That is, they are separated spiritually from God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So as they say no to God, as they say no to God's Son, as they do not submit to God's Word, they turn away and they become calloused and hardened. It's actually a process that that continually happens in an unbelieving mind. Verse 19 shows the outcome. Look at verse 19. They have become callous, spiritually and morally insensitive, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, not all believers are as wicked as they possibly can be. That's called God's grace. That's the restraining influence of the power of the Holy Spirit still exerted upon unbelieving people. During the last days, during the last days of the last days, that restraining power will be removed. That's what makes it such a tribulation. Go back to verse 17. And after seeing that darkness of mind, how sin affects They're thinking, he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk like this. That's that stark transition. And then he says, look at verse 20, it's kind of the hinge verse. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So we sit, yes, in a great country, but we sit here with a depraved American value system that is hostile to God. So as we live here as citizens of heaven, as our identity is in Jesus Christ, Paul says, listen, you you no longer walk that way. You no longer live that way. That's not how you learned Christ. So we go from human depravity. I want you to see now transformation in Christ. Look at verse 20. And what Paul's going to do, he's going to use several terms that sort of launch us into the classroom. I I know it's summer break, but we have to enter back into the classroom just hopefully just this morning. Look at verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him. Paul uses three parallel expressions to bring out a process of education. So you have the world, you have the Gentiles, you have Americans, you have this degenerate value system... Don't live like that because that's not how you learned Christ. You actually entered in and were schooled by the Son of God. And you learned a different way. 
Matter of fact, he makes an appeal to that different way all the way back in verse 1. He's going to use the same term, walk. Go back to Ephesians 4, look at verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. These are believing people, folks. Which means it's possible for a believer whose identity is in Christ to actually walk out of alignment with their identity. How do you know when somebody's walking in line with Christ? How do you know when somebody has learned Christ? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Walk that way. Then it will become evident that you have been in the classroom with Jesus Christ. Go back to Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Verse 20, you learned Christ. Really simple, uh, the way Paul is presenting this. God is, if you would, the curriculum. Not just like facts to learn, but a real relationship. That's what discipleship is, a real relationship. We learn, to, we learn and we follow Jesus Christ. The implication of the context is actually that they learned the lordship, the kingship, the rule of Jesus Christ. They learned there are moral demands. They learned the kingdom that he ushered in. John puts it this way in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God in eternal life. You've learned Him. You've learned the truth that is in Him. So live according to that truth. Christ is not only the substance of the teaching, He's not only the curriculum, but He Himself is the teacher. Look at the second term. You have heard Him. There is no preposition about Him. The, the New American Standard Bible actually interprets this correctly. The NASB translates this in verse 21, quote, if indeed you have heard Him. The calling of God is effectual. The voice of God is clear. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you hear Him, you are educated by Him and you will walk in line with Him. Not only is He the substance of the teaching and the teacher, He's also, in a sense, the setting of the classroom. And you have been taught in Him, right? You enter into a classroom. In this case, we enter, in a sense, into the person of Jesus Christ. And you have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Paul changes from the title Christ to the human name Jesus, which is rare for Paul, which should, which should cause that to stand out. What is he saying? John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when He was born, what name was He given? Jesus. Yes, He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. 
So it seems as though what Paul is emphasizing here in the classroom, as you have learned him, as you identify with him, it is talking about his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You have union with him in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But then what exactly is the truth that is in Jesus? I mean, yes, he moves from the title Christ to Jesus And what does that demand of us? If moral darkness leads to recklessness, what is the truth which frees us and leads us on the path of righteousness? And the answer is found in verses 22 to 24. Verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All this is, not all, but what this is, is a snapshot of the gospel. And in Colossians, which is a parallel verse, which Paul also wrote, it's very clear that these things have been done at a point in time. Whereas in Ephesians, there's a sense where these have been done and you continue to do them. This is a snapshot of what Jesus Christ has done. It is His work. The put on and put off are not fresh commands, but an exhortation to keep living in line with the Gospel. Living out your union with Jesus Christ. So what have they been taught? Right? You've learned Christ. You've heard Him. You've been taught in Him. They have been taught that salvation is spiritual identity or spiritual union with Jesus Christ. You were of the old man. Paul very clearly using the old man term is you were in Adam. He defined you. You followed after the same desires and passions. Now you are a new man. You are in Christ. That is your new identity. And it's, it's as, as Charles Hodge wrote, as we are called to put off our corrupt nature as a ragged and filthy garment... So we are required to put on our new nature as a garment of light. And as the former was personified as an old man, decrepit, deformed, intending to corruption, so the latter is personified as a new man, fresh, beautiful, and vigorous, like God created in his image. This is a picture of conversion, as the human side is called, or recreation, as the divine side is called. Now note the opposition. So these are the tensions. In the old man, there's corruption. That's when Adam represented you. In the new man, new creation. In the old man, evil passions. In the new man, holiness. In the old man, deceit. In the new man, truth. Totally incompatible with each other. So therefore, you keep putting off, because of your union with Christ, because you are no longer represented by Adam, you keep putting that off, and then you walk, not as the Gentiles, but you walk in newness of life. And amidst these contrasting portraits comes verse 23. This is the, sort of the how. Look at verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. If the Gentile's core problem is a distorted mind, the futility of the mind, the darkened understanding, then the solution 
of the old man, new man, the conversion, the recreation, must be the constant renewing of our minds. And that's what happened at the moment of salvation. It wasn't just an embracing of facts. It was a total transformation and conversion. But it did include the intellect. You heard, you were taught, you learned certain things about Jesus Christ. And now as you grow, you must be renewing your minds. As we approach this table, this is a reminder of what Jesus did. That we have communion through what? Union. We, we have union with Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can have communion with Jesus Christ. When we take this this morning, this is not just, oh, this is just simply what we do the first Sunday of every month. We are actually lifting symbols to our mouth saying, He died. He shed His blood And I can be forgiven of my sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what we proclaim. And we do this. As often as we do this, we proclaim His death until when? Until He comes. It's an incredible ordinance given to us to remind us that we live between His two appearings. We live between His birth and His second coming. These are non-negotiable, fundamental doctrines of the faith. And when we observe this, we're saying, this is the basis of our communion. Not my righteousness, but His. But yet, I must put away the old and put on the new and renew my mind. And this is also an invitation to live out a life of repentance and faith. Not that we can lose it, but that somehow that unbelief creeps in. Those Gentile ways creep in. The futility of the mind creeps in. So as we approach the Lord's table, I just want to leave you with these two applications. We must, as believers, being found in union with Christ, think gospel thoughts. Okay, What does that mean? Here's what it means. This is the renewing of the mind. This is what you need to hear today and what you need to remind yourself and your children tomorrow. And sometimes you speak truth to your own discouraged heart and other times you must speak that truth to other people's hearts. Here's what gospel thinking is. You are loved by Christ. You have been fully accepted in Christ. You have already been freed from the curse of the law in Christ. You have already died, been buried, and have risen with Christ. You have been given Christ's righteousness. Yes, you live in line with your calling, but you never need to try to achieve your own righteousness so He accepts you just a little bit more. You already have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have been given the Holy Spirit and the power to say no to sin and yes to holiness. That's gospel thinking. So tomorrow morning when you feel defeated and you feel condemned, you think these things. I am already accepted in Christ and I share in the inheritance of Christ. Think gospel thoughts. See, the light and the truth of the gospel show us the channels along which our thinking must run. The renewing of the mind. We need not fear for God's perfect love casts out what? Fear. So are you given to fear? Renew your mind by thinking gospel thoughts. 
You can cast your anxieties on God because He what? Because why? Do you believe that? No, not all the time, honestly. Because of circumstances, the way evil has touched our family or the way that we get hurt and sometimes how we meditate on the hurt. No, I don't always believe that. Okay, think gospel thoughts. He loves you. He has received you. He has accepted you. He himself suffered persecution. And the example to you how to respond. We do not need to lust or envy For every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. You can rejoice with a brother or sister who has more than you or is noticed more than you or has a relationship before you have because every good and perfect gift comes down from your Father and He loves you and He has given you a full inheritance in His Son. We can pray for our enemies because the Gospel assures us that Christ is coming again. This is not the whole story. We don't need to feel discouraged and defeated. And even when we do, we can remind ourselves that the gospel gives us hope. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest command, he said this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. How are you loving God with your mind? What words are entering into your mind What text do you allow to come into your mind? What images, still or moving, do you allow to come into your mind? Does it renew you in a likeness of Jesus Christ? Colossians, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, which we have, we have union with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We need to take time to be in communion with God, to reflect and meditate on Him. Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But not only think gospel thoughts, but live out your baptism. What does that mean? You entered into a union with Christ. You identified with Him in His death. Paul says to believers, put to death the sin that's still in you. Put it to death. Live out your union with Christ. But dying is only part of that sequence. There's also living. Putting on the new self. Participate in Christ's resurrection. Walk in line with the Holy Spirit. Putting on the new man. Yes, we already did that. We already put off and we already put on. And now we are putting off and we are putting on As we walk, not this way, but as we walk, worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus.